Welcome to another episode of the Map Escaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today I'm talking with Michael Buley. He's been on the show before. He's the Senior Director at AI Systems at Neomap. And today on the podcast we're talking about the state of the art. Where are we in terms of capturing aerial imagery? What does it look like today? What What equipment are we using? How do we process the captured data? And what are people buying? What are people paying for? What are they doing with this data at the end of this? In some ways, this is a story about turning unstructured data into structured data into insights. We just happen to be talking about aerial imagery. There's no way I could afford to keep this podcast running by myself. So I ask companies to help cover the cost of producing their episodes. Not all of them agree. Nearmap did. So thank you very much, Nearmap, for helping to keep this podcast running. Really appreciate it. Hi, Michael. Welcome back to the podcast. You've been here before, and I will put a, a link to the previous episode in the show notes of this one. And we need to be a little bit careful that we won't cover too much old ground here. So today, I, I really want to talk with you about cameras. How do you capture aerial imagery? On, we're going to be talking a little bit about AI. We're going to be talking about the business model of capturing aerial imagery, what we do with it, who buys it, what do they use it for, that kind of thing. And then if we have time, I want to move on to a topic that you call post-disaster AI. Before we get it, into all of that, please, a brief introduction. Who are you? Where are you working? Why, why are you qualified to talk about all this kind of stuff? Oh, it's great to chat again, Daniel. It's been a while. I'm still Senior Director of AI Systems at Nearmap, running the, the AI team of data scientists and machine learning engineers, basically turning our aerial imagery captures into insights and information using machine learning. I'm glad that you're still the Senior Director there. <laughs> I would be shocked if you, if you weren't, if you had moved on to something else or been demoted. Can I tell you a little bit about my experience with uh, capturing aerial imagery before we get started? Maybe to set the scene, I want to talk about what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. But, uh, maybe I'll, I'll give you a bit of context of where I'm coming from and you can help fill in the blanks. So back in the day, about 10, 12 years ago, so I was at university. I was working for a, an organization called the, the Geospatial Research Center at Canterbury in, in Christchurch, New Zealand. And we, we were doing a project. We wanted to make a thermal map of Christchurch. So we took a thermal camera out of a BMW car. We welded it to an aluminium plate, we put in a, an IMU beside it, we hooked it up to a GPS, we flew it over the city and took photos and we, you know, we captured imagery, or thermal imagery of the city. This is my experience with capturing aerial imagery. Where are we today? What, could you help fill in the gaps? As an aside, that project sounds like a lot of fun, but it, it, it's quite different to, to how we approach things. So we've been capturing aerial imagery for about 15 years now, I think we just ticked over. And we take very much the, we go from bespoke capture and systems to really this sort of industrial, highly systematic, highly automated approach where we do a repeatable coverage program with a whole set of sensors on urban areas, um, mostly where people live. And we do it again and again, year after year, um, so that business customers and organizations can uh, get eyes on the ground. Uh, and a lot of the users aren't, aren't people who know anything about sensors or all the exciting things about putting a camera in a plane and, and flying it around. Uh, they just want to see the pictures and they want to see how things are changing over time. So when we talk about putting the camera in the plane, are we still there when we think about the state-of-the-art technology? Is it an SLR camera that we're bolting to a plate and sort of rigging up to, to these other systems? What do the advancements look like today? Like what does what, what the state-of-the-art look like today? Yeah, so, so we, we used to actually do that. We used to have um, these sort of DSLR-type setups with really long zoom lenses and things. And then uh, Hypercamera 2 uh, was launched shortly after I joined Nearmap about, about five years ago. And that was our first real sort of custom camera system where it doesn't look much like a camera anymore. There's all sorts of parts that were, were bespoke in there. And just a few months ago, we started running our Hypercamera 3 system in production. So there's, there's imagery available for customers to use and that, that thing is state-of-the-art. It's all the way from like lenses and sensors to the stabilization systems and all sorts of things are just, have been very, very carefully designed to tight spec to fly efficiently and give high quality so we can capture larger scale for the same cost. Last time we spoke, you were just capturing RGB imagery. Is that still the case with, with this new camera? Yeah, good question. It's not anymore, actually. In the, in the Hypercamera 3 system, We've actually um, bolted on a, a near-infrared sensor so we can capture near-infrared as an additional channel on top of our RGB. And then, of course, we're doing structure from motion to turn the RGB imagery into 3D. So you've kind of, you can talk about an elevation channel as well. 
So yeah, build, building up the repertoire of, of different things really as customers need them. So I'm clearly not an, an, an expert in this space, but my, my guess is we need to capture images from multiple different angles if we're going to create these 3D objects. Does that mean that you have to really carefully design your, your campaigns to pass over things in a way that you can build these 3D models afterwards? Or can you capture the whole thing at once using different look angles? Yeah, so you'll have a plane do uh, what's essentially a lawnmower type pattern where it's going up and back, which is the same way that I think aerial imagery has been done for a while. What we've had in the past is four different look angles, so kind of a north, south, east, west type view at about 45 degrees, and that gets turned into 3D but also gets used as a, as a thing in its own right because it's really helpful to look at the side of a building or, or a tree or something like that. The difference with the new camera is that it does a lot more look angles and the specs have basically been designed to further improve the 3D reconstruction. Look, I, I've looked at some of the early imagery coming through and it, it's pretty exciting to be honest. Yeah, so <laughs> in a previous call, you showed me some of this imagery coming through and I got to say, I was blown away. The things that stuck out for me was being able to see that, like, identify, clearly identify corrugated plastic roofs. So these tiny little corrugations in plastic roofs from the, the flying height was, was amazing. And also I remember being able to see the grid patterns in solar panels. It, it was pretty impressive. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is here that you've got this amazing imagery, RGB. In a previous conversation, you, you said that um, instead of focusing on capturing more channels, like more data, you're just going to capture better data with this RGB and rely on the increased amount of texture or the, the better texture to be able to identify objects. But in this new camera, you've got infrared as well as a channel. Can you explain the thinking behind adding a, a new channel and, and what that'll mean for you in terms of capturing imagery and identifying objects? You're right. We can get a lot from RGB imagery and, and we can leverage the, the huge body of machine learning research on recognizing stuff just from RGB pictures that's been built up. The near-infrared is, is useful in its own right. So there's a bunch of customers who are they're just used to getting near-infrared, things like NDVI calculations. So it's good for them. But it also gives us the opportunity to add more information. So yes, we get great texture from RGB, but any additional information that the near-infrared provides, we're going to be able to start to leverage that. Looking at things like, I guess, vegetation health is a big use case for near-infrared in the vegetation world. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see what what benefit that gets us as we recognize not just the presence of vegetation, but what state it's in. And, and the same with the, the increased, uh, I guess, clarity that you get with the imagery. A lot of our machine learning work has, has kind of really pushed the boundary of what's possible with that sort of, you know, five centimeter aerial imagery. You know, you're looking at not just is it tile or shingle roof, but like what's the condition? Is there rust? Is there staining? And you're trying to spot are there shingles missing? And they get pretty small. And so just in any little extra quality improvement you can squeeze out there, a lot of our more useful and valuable attributes are actually sitting on that edge where you, you can get them, but we'll be able to get them better. And then there'll be new things we can capture and recognize that we simply can't do today. So again, I, I realize I'm referring back to our previous conversation a, a lot here. And for the listeners, this will be well worth checking out if you haven't already listened to it. I remember something about you being able to identify you know, 30, 40 features in the imagery as it was then. And I, I realize now that you've increased that to 70, 80. Um, I'm, I'm not sure the, the exact number, but there, were, there was this big increase in the amount of features you could identify. And I guess my question is, is what happened? Is this just because of the new camera? Is it a better model? What's changed? Like what, what, what made that change happen? What we did, um, we're up to our fifth generation of AI system now, uh, which that's been out for uh, a good few months now. And, and the fifth generation has, I think, 78 layers in it for the more machine learning oriented people. Um, the core of it is this, this deep learning model, which does semantic segmentation. And the one model actually produces all 78 of those layers as an output. And it's actually the same model that runs in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the US. So it's, it's this really cool, elegant solution of one model, but many outputs. And as you add more outputs in, it's really more about crafting accurate, meaningful definitions, uh, training the labeling workforce to label for those new things, and then just winding it into the same training process. And, you know, now that we're, we're about five years into this journey, uh, we're getting pretty efficient at that process of adding new definitions, new data, and, and new layers into the model. And then the existing ones improve as well, because there's, there's often 
if there's commonalities between different attributes, you can actually get improved performance as well as better cost efficiency doing it that way. So, you know, the, the sky's the limit in terms of how many new layers we add in future. So, so you mentioned New Zealand, Australia, the, the US and Canada there. So I'm guessing you have business interests in those places. That's probably why you're focusing there. Is there also because maybe the, the buildings are similar, the, the landscape is similar? I'm wondering if the model would perform the same if you went to somewhere in Sudan, for example. That would be an interesting thing to test. Um, and, and the correct thing to do would be to test it empirically on, on data. But to give you an intuition for how, how a model works at the core, I think we talked last time about with machine learning, you program through the data rather than through kind of, you know, twiddling knobs and tweaking things um, as much as reasonably possible. So for me, it's about what distribution of data do we have in our training set? So if it's buildings in the Sudan, how unusual are they compared to the full collective set of all the cities and towns we capture across all those four countries? Certainly when we extended from our training data on Australia and the US, for example, we saw the, the model work really, really well in New Zealand and Canada without any retraining at all. We've since added additional training data just to you know, hone the edges, but it's really about whether it's something new and unusual that's never been seen before. So there's this sort of wisdom of, of real production machine learning models where as soon as you release a model, it's old and out of date. And whether that's changing architectural styles in, in one city or adding new areas, it's about continually adding and improving to your training set. Look, the model extends pretty well to new things, but then you kind of catch up with the training set so it can work even better. Okay, so we've got this new camera, Hyper Camera 3. It's capturing you know, better, stronger, faster data. Also another channel, infrared or near-infrared. Your model's improving. You're being able to identify and segment more features. This is great. Like, this is amazing. What is the business model of this? Like uh, my, my guess is there's some kind of imagery as a service and there's some kind of vector maps as a service. What, what, am, am I on the right path here? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, for a long time, you know, for 15 years, we've had imagery as a service customers, whether they're viewing it in our, our map browser tool and using it directly there. And, you know, you don't need any geospatial skills to do that. More software skills, you're just in a browser looking at pictures. And then we've got API users on the imagery as well who kind of pull it into their own custom applications. There's two, three years ago now that we launched the Nearmap AI as a product. Um, that was in response to customers saying, hey, can you help us recognize things in the imagery? So people have sort of vector maps as a service almost. For every pixel of RGB imagery uh, where we're producing actually a Zoom 21 in WebMakata set of 78 pixel probabilities for each of the 78 classes. And we run that through a big post-processing engine. And then we make that available behind an API. So you can basically, we've got this feature API thing where you can ask for a one square kilometer, up to one square kilometer polygon of, of data, and it'll give you the map. That's kind of the core of where we were maybe a year ago. The new thing that we've done alongside Gen 5 is, is actually go beyond that. As it turns out, geospatial things are pretty complicated. <laughs> and I, I don't think I need to highlight that further to your, to your listeners, but this idea that a data scientist or a software engineer can just, you know, grab this payload of GeoJSON and other metadata and integrate into their application, it works for the more sophisticated users who, who have that sort of capability in-house. But now we're building things on top of that to basically make that information more accessible. So there's a whole stack of things that we're building on top of Gen 5 as, as really a product platform, which is still a product in its own right, but we're, you know, we're, we're going that extra mile for customers who want a more direct end solution. Yeah, I, I can't continue the conversation without like um, pointing out that this was a brilliant observation. Geospatial stuff is pretty complicated. I feel like this should be Tobler's second law or Michael's second law of geography. Geospatial stuff is pretty complicated. So, so you're doing a couple of different things here. Is this like following the, the, the same kind of ideology that people don't want data, that, that they want answers? Is, is this why you're moving beyond the, the, the vector maps? That's one way of putting it, I think. In, in a really practical sense, you've got a certain suite of users who have the capability to digest that more raw data. And if you want to broaden to more users, there's plenty of people who say, either I don't have the in-house capability or I don't have the time or it's, it's more cost-effective for me to just consume a, a more final thing. And so our customers, we've got heaps of customers in you know, insurance and local government and a whole bunch of other commercial type use cases. A lot of them, are, they like being able to reach deep in the stack when they want to, 
and see the picture or maybe get the vector map, but they also want that really simplified output often. Sometimes as a way of getting started before they go deeper, but also sometimes just to, just to make it more effective to get going. Are any of these, if I look at these as, as three different products, are any of them cannibalizing the, the other ones? Not really. Uh, what I find is, is that people seem to want that integrated stack. That's what we seem to do, I think fairly uniquely from what I've seen. I'd love to hear counterexamples, but people capturing content, doing machine learning on it and producing end results. I don't, I don't see other people doing that. But the customers that we have, even the ones that want the end results, they want to see all the way back. Every result we give, they get a little map browser link so that they can go and look at the picture that generated that data. And it, it just turns out to be so useful in, in intangible ways. Like you, you have people where, I don't know, they have some other source of truth and they think, oh, well, the near map data must be wrong here. And then they go and look at the picture and they go, oh, well, the near map data was captured a few months more recently than, than mine. And I can see that that property actually got developed since. So we're both correct, just at different points in time. Uh, so it allows you to sort of reason about what's going on. And yeah, I, I kind of liken it to dipping back in the stack as, as far as you need to, to get the best result. Okay, so if I had to try and summarize this, I would use words like lineage and trust and reproducible results. And my guess is, and you you described the world we live in uh, in a previous conversation as this post-truth world. So in this post-truth world, this is very valuable stuff, being able to click back and say, oh, okay, well, I can see where, where it came from. A couple of questions here. How important do you think this is in terms of getting people comfortable with the idea of remote management or remote observation, remote inspection, I, I guess we should call it. And has anyone ever challenged you on this kind of stuff? Said, hey, look, we, we don't believe these results. Have you faked this? Um, yeah. Can, can you prove it? So I, I, two different questions there. Um, pick whichever one you want and, and go for it. I think that concern is one that is very common to people who produce machine learning data sets in general. You tend to get your, your data and there's, there's often actually no way to prove where that data came from because it came from a variety of data sources and you have to accept that there's a certain error rate and that's life. But we do, when you work in critical applications such as, I don't know, someone, someone looking at assessing the risk uh, around a property and, and you know, whether, whether there are issues around uh, underwriting that property for insurance, you kind of need to be correct and, and you need to know why you've made a decision. So, so what people often do is that they'll challenge it and then they'll go back and look at the image and then they can, they can explain it. And obviously not, it's, it's not correct every time, but that explainability from having full provenance right back to the source of truth is, is, is really critical. I, I think there's actually, there's a couple of things in this, in this idea of, of lineage. Um, one is that post-truth world. Uh, I, I don't know how much you've been following things like stable diffusion and deep fakes and all that kind of thing. You, you, can, you can make pictures of anything now and there's, there's loads of research into like and adversarial machine learning. People are deliberately trying to do the wrong thing. I, I saw this really interesting development from uh, Adobe actually working with Leica and Nikon. Um, they've started this content authenticity initiative, which is basically around in this world of fake images, how do you create guarantees that what was captured on the camera is what comes out the other end of Photoshop to then get used in some application. I, I just think that's a fascinating initiative because it's starting to tackle this deep problem and that's a hard problem to solve when there's multiple vendors and changing of hands. Like <laughs> the easiest way is, well, we build the cameras and run them and then, and then we do everything along the way. So we can, we can make some pretty hard guarantees around that. So that's, that's one side around truth. That, that's really interesting. So this reminds me a lot of what we see in products. So if you think about um, protecting the rainforest, it's important that we don't consume you know, trees that, that come from very, very important parts of the rainforest or that aren't easily replaceable. So the idea is that if you can show the lineage of the products that you're buying, so you know that it doesn't come from this, this particular area, we're not impacting you know, Mother Nature in a, in a really negative way by consuming, buying, you know, participating in a certain market. So there's this idea of following things. So this is in the physical world, of course, but this is the first I've heard about it in the digital world. Like, can we track things back to where they came from? Do we know what happened to them along the way? Can we document it? Yeah. And I've had customers ask specifically about this space, which is fascinating to me. Like they're really, they're really on the ball with what's happening. And that, that content authenticity initiative thing is that, that was, only, was only announced, I think in October, uh, 2022. So it's, there's a lot happening in that space, but it, it's not like the, the, there's the malicious stuff that you have to worry about, but there's also just, 
just errors and challenges through complexity. And, and I think this is very, very analogous to what a lot of geospatial professionals do in that if you're working with data from some source and then someone else has transformed the data and then you have a poke at it and then you hand it off to someone else and they have a poke at it, there are so many things that can happen on the way there that allow errors to creep in, that allow misinterpretations to creep in. Unless you actually deeply understand exactly every step of what's happened to the data along the way, I don't know how you guarantee how well it works. I guess this is where it's great to have a company like, like Neomate, for example, to point to and say what, what they said. You know, someone that you can hold responsible for the accuracy and precision of, of the data that you're consuming. And because I guess at the end of the day, people are making decisions based on this and it could have huge consequences for the public at large. We're talking about lineage, trust and reproducible results. I know that you're collecting data and different frequencies. So, you know, two, three, four, five times a year kind of thing. Is this lineage and trust, does that go all the way through those different campaigns? Could I click on an image or click on a feature, click on a house and see how it's changed over time by diving back through, through these different campaigns that you've run? Definitely. That, that, that's, that's really the, the whole premise behind our capture program is to do it consistently. So I think going, going back 15 years, we've stuck to five to seven centimeters per pixel RGB as the base and added on other things over time. But uh, that allows us to, to do what I, I kind of described in a talk recently, kind of hop into this geospatial time machine and run our AI system on data that's up to 15 years old in Australia and about eight years old in the US. And then you get valid results and you can start to compare and look at changes. And man, there's some fascinating stuff there. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that there is. So now we're talking a little bit about capture rate and what are people asking for when, when you think about capture rate? Are they looking for increased coverage or do they want higher frequency? It's a balance as always. Our customers tend to focus on the built environment and where people live. So we focus less on square kilometers and square miles and more on the percent of population covered. So we're, we're constantly driving that up year after year. You know, we very capture, you know, in, in the really dense urban environments, we're capturing a few times a year. And then the more remote ones, we just capture them once a year. Particularly in the US, there's this idea of leaf on and leaf off capture. So trying to capture it when the leaves have fallen off the trees in, in certain parts of the country, because you can see more on the ground. But then they want leaf on as well to see how much vegetation there is. So it's a mix. What we really strive to do is to be consistent and to have that promise of consistency over time because our, our customers are long term. And they want, to, they want to see how the world changes. And if you keep messing around with the way you capture, you actually break that ability to monitor properly over time. Yeah, so that poses some interesting questions when we start to think about data fusion, right? So using this with other data sets, like at some stage, I guess you're going to have a mix match. You're going to have like different results being visible. Ah, in Neomap's imagery, I can see this house. It's not there in this other stuff. How do you see that playing out? That's tough. So people who do machine learning on a mix of different imagery sources, uh, which is, I, I think, the standard way it's getting done by you know, a, a range of startups, those different sources behave quite differently. And we, we have really tight control over it at Nearmap. And you know, I can go and speak to the people who design the cameras and, and run all the codes so we can understand everything about it. But what do you do if, if you've got a satellite data source that isn't detailed enough to pick up the roof condition, or maybe it can pick it up a little bit. And then another source where you can, and you're trying to blend together, you know, a whole bunch of different sources, you're going to get some really interesting behavior. I'll, I'll put it that way in terms of where the errors appear. I don't know how you would go about presenting that to customers in a simple way. What you want to do is abstract away those multiple data sources and fuse it together. But the, the quality of your results is going to be quite variable in a surprising way, depending on which, which sources you're leaning on, which is why we've been able to kind of go so fast and so easily just going all in on near map data. How certain do you have to be that the house is there or that these are the dimensions of the house before you would add it to your data set, present it to a customer? We give confidence scores and, and we actually do more than that now we do. So for building, for example, we'll give a confidence score, which is the percentage likelihood of that being a real building. So if it says 70%, then seven out of 10 times it should be a building and three out of 10 times it might not be. And you'd only get a low result like that for something like a garden shed that's half covered by trees. And then we give another score for buildings, which is a fidelity score, which is given it's a real building, what is the quality of the outline on that? Because you, you might detect that there's definitely a building there, but 
you know, the square footage might be off because of excessive tree overhang or something. So what we are on the side of doing is giving confidence in our results and being transparent about that so that customers can choose. Because your threshold might be different from mine. I might want to pick up every single possible result. Like I really might worry about false negatives and I'm willing to take some false positives. So for buildings, I'll take in all the garden sheds and everything else so I don't miss out on things. And I'll get more false positives as a result. But if you, if you say cut off and say, I'm going to ignore everything below 90% confidence, you'll only get those ones that we're really confident about and um, you'll knock out a lot of noise by doing that. So we, we really allow people to tune their own. And just to be clear, uh, my understanding is this is on a per pixel basis that we're labeling and identifying these objects. Yes, uh, at the start of the stack, but then it progresses through to being um, actually vector tiles under the hood and you're thinking about the object as a whole. So uh, the deep learning bit is pixels, but then, then it moves on to um, object level metadata and attributes and that kind of thing. So you've got things like parent-child relationships between buildings and roofs and solar panels and various bits of different roof materials and conditions and that kind of thing. And my guess, all of that is information that you can use to reinforce your, your decision or you know, bolster the, this confidence level. Oh, a roof has to exist on a house, for example, that there is that relationship. Yeah, well, so that, that actually happens a lot in the single global machine learning model. So if you built separate models for everything, then you could find some post hoc way of helping to reconcile the data. But the model itself is actually, you know, it's simultaneously assessing whether it's metal roof whether it's a roof, whether there's a solar panel and whether it's rusting, and the deep learning model will actually share features amongst those layers. And you, that's why you can get better performance as a result. Whew, we have we've come a long way already. Um, so the promise at the start of this was we're going to talk about like the, the state of the art in terms of image, aerial imagery or capture of aerial imagery. We've done that. We talked about the camera. There's been a little bit of AI sprinkled in throughout the, the entire conversation. And we talked about business models. I want to move on to something you call post-disaster AI. So let, let, let's start with a brief definition of that. What, what is that? What is post-disaster AI? If we start with our um, post-catastrophe imagery capture program called Impact Response, it's similar to our standard capture program where we put a plane up and, and capture, but it comes with this promise of capturing certain types of disasters like just after a fire or a hurricane event, for example that we get out there often within, within hours or a few days as, as fast as we possibly can and publish the imagery. So that's out there already. And what we've done with AI, instead of just looking at getting results in, we used to promise about a month, just recently really we've fully automated that process so surveys get processed by the AI much, much more quickly and they're identifying various types of damage. So I, I think most surveys are going to be going through in less than a week now and that time's going to come in and in and in as we work on it. And then if someone's trying to figure out what's happened in a disaster, uh, it could be an insurer deciding, you know, where the claims are likely to be or a local government trying to figure out how to respond to this. Not only can they see the imagery, which is there today, but they'll be able to see the analytical results. So we ran, we ran a whole heap of imagery on Hurricane Ian in the US within really a few days of capture. And you're starting to pull these high-level statistics out of huge areas on how many square miles in total of damaged trees or, or damaged roofs uh, there are, or junk and wreckage and that kind of thing. It's, it becomes really powerful in helping you perform a rapid response. So I've often heard people talk about AI in terms of computer vision when they're, when they're looking at imagery and trying to identify things as, as trying to you know, recreate what, what humans can do. So looking at things and saying, oh, if a human can identify that, then we should be able to identify it as well, which is a huge problem to solve. But when you're looking at these huge data sets over the, these vast geographic areas, and you're, you're doing it on a, on a regular basis, when do you think we're going to get to the stage where instead of just describing the world around us, using AI to describe and identify features and saying, this is the way it is today, when will we get to the stage where we'll predict what it, what it might be in the future? We're pretty much there today. Huh. <laughs> It's, it's really exciting. Like there's a, long, there's a long list of things you can do in that space. If you start with that post-catastrophe AI, you, you, get this, you get this virtuous cycle. So let's just imagine you've, got, you've captured an area before a disaster and then you capture it after with imagery. And you've got the AI results from before and you've got the AI results from after. And then you can get human experts to validate and you can basically make sure that you find you know, every single building that's been damaged and every single one that survived in the path of a hurricane or, or after a fire's gone through. 
And what that gives you is it gives you a before and after kind of post-catastrophe loss data set. And from that, you can say, given the information I know about this building prior, what's the likelihood of that being damaged in the event of a fire or a, or a wind event or, or something like that? So the fact that we capture this repeatable longitudinal data allows us to look even more generically than post-catastrophe, just really an event has occurred. You've got a before and an after, and you can use the information before to predict what might happen after. And you've, you've got you know, large-scale data sets that get generated to first train the model and then validate how accurate it is. So th- this is moving away from there is a tree to you know, that this is something a human can see, a human can and identify, and perhaps giving it a, an associated risk. So a human couldn't you know, just look at that and say, okay, there, there's a risk here. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, you're operating in a different domain to the direct, you know, machine learning on an aerial image to identify things. Because that kind of stuff, you can get crazy accurate. Like the, I can't remember the percentage of buildings that we have where we're like 99% or or better sure that it is a building. But the accuracy is just, you know, you, you, can, you can basically beat human accuracy in, in, in a practical sense. In terms of this future predictive stuff, you obviously can't because there's a lot more randomness going on. So what you're, what you're doing there really is looking at what factors, um, maybe on a building, maybe nearby, like we, we can look in the, in the map, you know, 10 feet, 100 feet, 300 feet away from a building and look at, you know, trees nearby. Then we can say, well, what, what impact does that have on the risk? Does it make it twice as likely, three times as likely that the, the building is damaged? So you're not, you're not giving the same level of certainty as what's in the image, but really the ideal data set on which to build a good predictive model is one that is geospatially distributed, that is captured consistently over time, and one where you can really quite easily hunt out all the damaged buildings and all the survived ones. And that's exactly the data set that we have started to generate at the core. So uh, it gives us basically as good a, as good a chance as, as is possible. It is predicting the future, but it's not, obviously not with the accuracy of 99% confident this is going to happen. So when I talk to people about this kind of thing, Again and again, this idea of change detection comes up. So predicting change or identifying change, I should say. And my understanding is this is relatively easy to do. Oh, that that pixel is different from the way it was before. A change has happened. But I think the more useful result would be meaningful change. When you talk about meaningful change in terms of building damage, if we use that as an example, what kind of things are you picking up on? Like how, when do you know that, oh, okay, this is meaningful change and it's damage that, that has happened here. How do you do that? Is, is this just a question of extremely accurate labeling? So for this risk modeling case, yes, because you, you, you really need to make sure that your ground truth is impeccable quality. So every time you use automated methods to identify that, you know, you think a building has been damaged, you're going to verify that with a human because if you get that wrong, that's a problem not only for your model training, but it's a problem for your reporting of how accurate it is. So for that case, um, it's really called auto-labeling is, is the machine learning term where you're, you're using these automated algorithms to sort of bootstrap a high-quality labeled data set much more efficiently than just hand-labeling every single property. When you go further than that, when you look at other sorts of change, it's very easy to do a not very good job of change detection. <laughs> what I mean by that is you can take our vector map on two different dates and you can just subtract them. You know, you can say, well, let's do some intersections and, and all sorts of things. But things shift a little bit. Let's imagine that changes that are meaningful occur 1% of the time. Now, if your model kind of gets it wrong inconsistently 1% of the time, that's pretty good, right? You're right 99% of the time. But if you then look for any changes in the before and after and you, you go fully automated, if you've got 1% variation due to noise and 1% variation due to real change, that's the signal, you're basically going to get it wrong half the time. And that's what makes change detection such a deeply challenging problem. It's not that it's hard uh, in concept, it's the signal to noise ratio. It just kills you every time. So for that, you then need to start looking at things like multiple dates within your models. Look, there's things we're doing in that space and we have a, we have a delightful data set for that kind of analysis when you've got you know, in, in some areas, you, you might have 100 or more historical captures of, of one area, and you can, you can do a lot with that kind of data. So early on in the conversation, we, we talked about that this business model, so the business of imagery as a service, vector maps as a service, and, and then like building these reports on, on top of that. 
When you think about what we're talking now, like predicting change and identifying meaningful change, who's buying that? Like, who are you building the, these solutions for? There are some people who want it now, and there's, you know, people in local government and insurance who say, yeah, I need to know where the changes are. But it, it becomes, over time, really everyone who's using this kind of data. And maybe I'll throw out the idea that from time to time, you see these open source data sets get released that might be, you know, a whole stack of buildings or, or roads or whatever else. And that's great. They're really useful for people. People jump in and use them. Or they create their own, particularly in the local government space, they'll do what's called planometrics, which in, involves a lot of sort of hand drawing of stuff. And you, you craft this beautiful data set. Now, what if you get a fresh data set multiple times a year? What do you do with that? Do you just chuck out the old one and, and swap the new one in? Usually what needs to happen is people got to have to figure out where meaningful changes occurred and, and then figure out what to do about that. So really it's the rapidity with which these automated data sets are being produced. And, you know, it could be three to six times a year in some places, which is just crazy when you're looking at people who are updating data once a decade. If you're updating with that frequency, you have to solve change detection because you need to acknowledge the way the world is evolving in, in very near to real time. My guess is the insurance industry would, would be interested in, in this kind of stuff. Am I, am I right? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when, when they're, you know, renewing policies and that kind of thing, they're looking at whether, has there been meaningful change to this property or not? Because that, that tells you a lot about how you need to renew it. And same with, you know, in local gov, there's the, the classic case for change detection there is people looking at tax assessment and saying, have there been, you know, have people done further development on this house that then needs to go and adjust how their tax works so that we can make it fair across all the different buildings. But frankly, any, anyone who is wanting to hoover up data at a regular rate, that regularity just creates this problem which change detection is needed to solve. So I, I want to move on a little bit now and sort of talk about some more high-level stuff. Uh, you've done a great job of sort of walking us through what, what Neomap is up to and the business model, the different data layers you offer, some of the AI magic you're doing on that. But if we get in our theoretical helicopter and fly up and look down on things, so I, I want to start with, with, a, with a question. Do you have a robot lawnmower? I absolutely do. Do you have a, a, a wire cable in the ground that shows the lawnmower where the boundary is? I do indeed. So what you've done is you've, you've changed the world to help this robot navigate. We see that in different places. You know, we, we see when people talk about automated cars, like self-driving cars, for example, we think about how are we going to change the world? Like how are we going to make the signage different? Are we going to put different lines on the road? What objects can we create to help robots, machines navigate the world? Do you see anything like that on the horizon in terms of can we do something? Are we going to change the physical world to help the machines, to help AI navigate it, to help it see features and more easily identify them? Or do you see the future of AI being more, be more and more like humans? Look at the world like humans. They do a great job of navigating. Instead of changing the world, just be better at identifying things the way humans do. I, I think it has to be the latter. If you look, for example, at uh, you know, the Tesla philosophy for, for autonomous cars, they take this interesting line of only using vision primarily. The hypothesis there is that because roads and signage and everything are built for humans to navigate visually, if you can't grapple with that, if you can't recognize things as a human does, there is no way that you can solve it, right? You might get 90% of it done or 95% or 99%, but that's not good enough. You've got to, you've got to eke out all those corner cases so that you know, they push very hard down the vision path. Because you can't expect every single road to be changed in response to what you're doing or, or a map to be created that is perfectly up to date. What we do with RGB imagery is recognize whatever we think a human can recognize consistently, right? Because that's necessary for human expert labeling. And the state of the art for modeling is that you can absolutely reach that human performance if you label right and keep the data clean. Now, there are things that people want to know about that aren't visual from the air. Um, and that's where, you know, you have to look at other data sets and other ways to, to blend things in. Obviously, you can't see inside a house from the air. But I don't know, it, it's a big ask to ask the world to change to support robots. I just don't see it happening to the extent that's necessary to solve corner cases. Okay, so, yeah, and, and I totally appreciate that side of the argument. And thank you very much for sharing that with us. Are we setting the bar too low when we think about our human ability as the baseline? So at some stage, you know, early in the conversation, we're talking about you identifying these, these risk scores, for example. And it's basically talking about things 
seeing things that, that humans can't see or can't build, can't piece together to create something. You're, you're, you're doing something, you're going beyond the human baseline. When you think about machine learning, AI, especially in terms of you know, computer vision, are we being unambitious when we set the, the baseline at the, the human's ability, our ability to identify things? I think we're setting it too low if we look at single image. Uh, absolutely. That's kind of where a lot of the research has been. So you're, what you consider reasonable for the, you know, the, the model to detect is what a human can see in that image. But what we've done since day one uh, is, is let people look at multiple pictures. And you get a, a really fascinating side effect of tree overhang on buildings, uh, of all things. So if you get a human labeler to label where they know a building's roof to be and let them look at multiple dates, they can actually draw out the area under a tree pretty accurately unless it's really deep under the tree. And then they draw the tree and the model can actually learn to, to guess really quite accurately how far the building extends under the tree, even though you can't see it in that image. Wow. Yeah, if you use multiple images, um, that's certainly where you need to be. Like it's, it's about, I don't know, it's very theoretical to worry about accuracy against what can be seen in an image. That, that, that's what most people do. If you worry about accuracy against what is physically present on the ground, to the best of your knowledge, that's the real baseline that matters, right? If you have someone using your data, they don't give you any prizes for saying, oh, but it's hard to spot in that particular image. They don't care. It may not even be relevant to them that the data came from aerial imagery in the first place. They might just be looking for data set of where the solar panels are. I want to round off this conversation with, <laughs> with what might be a little bit of an unusual question. Given we've been talking about you know, how accurate your models are and how hard you're working on to you know, create these incredibly accurate and consistent data sets, let's say I'm, I'm, I have a house in New Zealand and I don't want you to know that I've built an extension onto it. Could I hide the extension on my house from you? Or what would I have to do to that? Or what would I have to do to, to hide it, to make it invisible? You could certainly get into a really, really fun space of adversarial machine learning where people build physical objects to, to trick a model. You, you need to know quite a lot about the model for that though. So it's, that's probably not very practical. Look, because we're, we're taking our pictures from, from the air, really from perspectives that um, anyone can see whether they're in a plane or walking past on the street, it, it comes down to that same question of, well, can, can someone walking past see it? So sure, you can hide it, but I live in an area where um, if you start a renovation, you know, the second it started, your neighbor walking past you on the street says, oh, I see you've started a renovation. It's, you know, there's, there's not much hiding from the physical environment. These are open, visible things that actually impact others. If you look at hard, hard surface in your, in your backyard, that impacts, you know, the runoff will impact your neighbors and people see that. It's, it's challenging to hide. I appreciate that. Any issues with, with privacy? So I think we saw in... Was it in Germany where there was some controversy around Google Street View? Have you run into anything like that? Where, hey, like my property, this is you know, my private life. Don't look in here. When you're in that space of using AI to identify things, whether it's facial recognition, which is that gets super controversial, it's a good position to be in to be sitting back from the state of the art. Like I, I don't want to be in a place where we're pushing the privacy boundaries and kind of trying to culturally change what's accepted. So if you look at things like Street View that have really set that, that boundary, we can't see faces. So we don't, there's nothing to blur because we can't see faces or number plates. We're at a greater distance. And we also capture, the focus is really the built environment. It's not people. When you capture at an arbitrary time of day on a few times a year, even if you wanted to, there's no reasonable way to track individuals. It's, it's really about looking at how the, how the environment is changing and how our urban spaces are changing. And as with all these things, um, look, everything comes with risks. But what it comes down to at the end of the day is it's a cost-benefit trade-off. You've got to mitigate the risks as much as you can and ensure that value is added. And I, I think we're adding a lot of value. We've done, oh, look, we haven't even talked about it, but we've done some really cool stuff on national scale tree studies in, in Australia and the US, kind of looking at where the trees are and urban heat island effects and that kind of thing. You, you can do so much good with this data. and it's just in many ways ill-suited to pushing the boundaries on privacy. When you're doing this work, you're talking to people like me that perhaps don't understand a great deal about AI, the possibilities of it, the, the way it works. You can tell by the questions that I'm asking that you know, I, I'm not the expert that you are. What do you wish people like me understood about AI? Is there any question that comes up again and again 
is there any like, oh, if only most people got this, like the world would be better? Certainly the thing which would make my life easier, kind of being selfish, is if people understood the difference between a demo and an early stage POC of AI and actually what it takes to build these systems that operate consistently at scale over time. Even as an expert, you've got to really read between the lines to know what's going on and to know where someone's at with a solution. It's very easy to pass off an early stage demo or POC as, oh, look, we're just this one little step away from a product. And that's something I personally find frustrating because it's, it's really hard to explain without getting super technical what that gap is. And that gap is, is, is at least an order of magnitude of work. That's the tough bit. Can you give us an idea of the kinds of things we should be looking for? Because I, I think all of us in this space see stuff like this all the time. We're like, oh, we can do this. We can identify everything on the planet. Like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're using a cell phone to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm optimistic. I, I want to believe this. Can you give me a few ideas of the things I should look for in, in these pitches, in these demos, that, or the kinds of questions that I should be asking and to figure out, like, how close are we to a production-ready system? The biggest one in, in the geospatial context has to be the ability to choose an arbitrary location. And what I mean by that is, look, every, every slide deck, everyone to some extent cherry picks the results they're going to show, right? They show the beautiful house that's been picked up perfectly and that, that nice little bit of, of roof damage or whatever it is. And they'll, they'll show their shiny example and they can show two or three examples before people get bored and they go, wow, what you do sitting there is you infer that that's how it performs everywhere. And that's not the case. So what you want to do is ask for samples in, can we call up that address? You know, what, what does that look like? I know that one. Or we look at an area. We're really big on not giving people arbitrary performance measures because you can cheat them so easily, right? I can make an easy test set of easy houses and get 100% performance if I want. Or I can make a really hard one and get really low performance. So we're really big on giving people samples that are meaningful to them. So if it's a local government area, then give them a sample from their, from their area. If it's an insurer, let them, let them actually choose their own set of locations. You know, they'll choose a, a random subset of locations sprinkled throughout their, their policy book and they'll look at the data and be, you know, you've got to be really open about that. That's the only way to do it fairly. There's no other way really. Again, we've come a really long way in the conversation and um, you know, we've got a lot of valuable insights in, in terms of what you're doing, how you're doing it and the way things work today. I, I guess the question is now, like, what, what is this going to look like in the future? So we've got imagery, we've got vector maps, we're, making, we're building these answers on top of the vector maps. Is that it? Are we done now? Is it just a matter of like rinse and repeat and do all of those three things better? Wow. If we can solve all of those in-state solutions, then, uh, then sure, I reckon we're done. Uh, if, if, you look, if you look back at the journey we've had, we've kind of solved repeatable automated imagery at scale. Then we've solved these kind of AI vector maps at scale, and we can just keep packing on more and more layers and attributes there. The next bit is, is diving deep with customers. It's saying, how do I build on top of this base AI map to actually craft what's the risk of this happening in this scenario? You know, for roof condition, we, we, we released this summary score that just simplifies things for, for particular types of user. So, yeah, if, if we can knock over every single use case with a bespoke solution, sure, we're done, but I reckon that'll take more than a year. <laughs> I, I, I realize I glossed over that a lot, <laughs> but, but thanks for, for setting me straight. Just focusing on the, the, these three different states that we talked about, could you have done any one of those without doing the other? Are they like interlocked, interdependent? Could you have hopped over the vector maps and gone straight to, to providing these answers, to doing analysis and providing that as a service? You can, and I've seen people do it. So that's where instead of starting with that foundational play of how do we do this efficiently at scale, you actually start with the customer and say, how do I cobble together some system or model that solves your problem? That works really well initially when you want to solve one particular problem. The issue with that is when you want to do it again, you pretty much have to rebuild your whole stack. And then you do it again and rebuild your whole stack again. So if you want to solve a lot of those solutions or solve them with great efficiency, you can't skip it. So maybe you skip it early on to get some solutions and then go backwards and kind of have to rebuild everything. We had the, really had the, the fortune of being in a company where they understood long-term technology development. You don't build a camera system overnight. And in the same way, you don't build an AI system overnight. So we we were given the license to build those core foundations correctly. And now you're really starting to see the, the benefit of that where we can you know, just pack in new layers for all sorts of different customers and do some 
like the, the tree study was was really quite easy, relatively speaking, to do. Uh, just as an add-on, pull a bit of data, look at some results, and and you're done. Building the foundations allows you to do the that third step with with much greater efficiency. That's what I'm really excited about. Thanks very much. This has been awesome. As always, I learn a ton when when I when I talk with you. I hope the the listeners have learned a lot as well. Where can we go? So you work at Nearmap. I can I can put links to that in the in the show notes of this episode. Where where else can people go if they want to reach out to you, learn more about this stuff? Is there any product demos we can click on? What can we do if we want to know more? I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter a little bit as well, but mostly LinkedIn. If you want to reach out, I'd love to have a chat. Always open for a chat. You can see uh, if you want to hear more about the things I've talked about. I've got a history of my my Navigate presentations. So we do this company conference every year. So you get this really nice story of four years of the progression of what we've built, and which is a really nice way to get your head around uh, what we do. But yeah, just just hit me up for a chat, and uh, I can help point you in the right direction. Excellent. Thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great talking. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael Buley, Senior Director at AI Systems at Nearmap. Michael's a really good follow on Twitter, so I'll put a link to his Twitter account in the show notes of this episode, and, and you can also reach out to him on, on LinkedIn if you have any questions. I mentioned right at the start of this conversation that, that Michael's been on the podcast before, so today in the show notes you'll find links to that episode. You'll also find links to other episodes that are related to, to image capture. One I think you might find particularly interesting is an episode with a company called Urban Sky, and they are using stratospheric balloons to capture high-resolution imagery. It's a super interesting concept. And again, there'll be links to all this in the show notes of, of this episode. So thanks very much for tuning in again this week. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome to reach out to me if you have feedback, questions, or ideas. Uh, the best place to do that is at mapscaping.com. So you'll find my email address there. You'll find links to our social media profiles. Um, and I would, I would love to hear from you. Okay, that's it for me. I'll see you again soon. Bye.